Good morning. I'm happy we were able to put in a shear between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And Mitzvah Shem, we will hope to continue the Sunday after Sukkot's Bulineder, but we will send out an email to that effect one way or another. Let's go to Shaftim Periches Pasuk Yud. We were in the middle of the Mohama and they had already stopped most of the people from crossing and had gotten rid of most of the army. Not everyone, and there were some notable exceptions, Rishayim, dangerous people who Gideon felt was part of his tzivoy to fight them and finish them off. So he crosses with his 300 men, crosses the Yardim, goes to one city, Yiddish city, asks them for basic supplies, bread, and hummus mustama. He would have been happy with the bread. And uh, they said, absolutely not, and we don't know what side is going to win, which was a chutzpah. And uh, Marie de Bamalchus, and keep that in mind, because we're going to get back to the Malchus aspect. All the Shaftim had partial din Malchus, but not completely. And he tells them that when he gets back, with the prisoners at the end of the Muhammad, he's going to have to punish them. And Giddon, if you remember from last week, is not the vindictive type. As a matter of fact, when Shevet Ephraim comes with the accusations, very angry, why don't you call us and why don't we fight? He's very conciliatory. It's very, very easy to not stand in his covet. Don't talk to me like that. He speaks with tremendous anivus and he gives them all the credit which is often the best way to handle things. And once in a while, if it's something that impedes the war effort, like over here, where they don't give him basic supplies, he has to come back and show them the chen yas. And that is a chilik, by the way. Giving it to Ephraim wouldn't impede the effort. Ephraim wants credit. They were insulted. Why don't you call us? Okay, so we apologize. And you're doing a better job. We saved you for the best. And we didn't do anything compared to what you did. And it worked out. Wonderfully. Here, it didn't work out very well. They were tired and hungry. Now they're more tired and more hungry. And they go to the next city, Penuel, after Sukkot, and same response, and therefore he has to have the same reaction, which will play itself out this week. Uh, right now, he's chasing Zevach and Samuna and the 15,000 men that he still has and that are at large and dangerous. So this is what remains. 120,000 active enemy combatants were eliminated already. What's the word they use today? Eliminated? They have all sorts of politically correct... What? Neutralized. <laughs> Neutralized can mean uh, dead or wounded. Does it mean dead? Neutralized only means dead. Because in Sanhedrin, the sugya of uh, Reddev, neutralized apialacha means shoot him in the foot first if you don't have to kill him. Well, when it comes to a terrorist, that's you know, what dead is neutralized. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, <laughs> I don't want uh, I really say it like that. Okay. Then I want to highlight uh, that he was <laughs> killed. 
Yeah. Right. Yes, some say it was even. That's interesting. You're saying it doesn't sound very Pesach Is that what you're <laughs> suggesting? If, we, if I wouldn't have those Medrashim. No, but it still sounds like it's uh, Kika. No, I, I agree. If you wouldn't have the Medrashim, you would give it weeks because you've got to assemble the army, you have to call them. But the Medrashim indicates, as a matter of fact, the Pusik we have coming in Yud Gimel talks about doing everything before the sun sets on that particular day. It sounds like a lot is going on, but that's part of the day. So then you'd have to say, Kikar is a flat one, a matzah. Or, like the Sfardim, I'm sure they were Sfardim, uh, like the Sfardim used to make it uh, a lafa or something like that. So we would call what? That's what I'm saying. The Sfardim should well, have like, uh, no, the Sfardim today, by and large, don't use the flat matzah, but it's thick, yeah. They can go up to a tefach, lachma ponim, matzah. They go up there. That's pretty thick. So the way we look at matzah, it's hard to imagine. Why would you call that a kikar lachem? But the reality, it could be fit into the medrashim pretty easily. Yeah. No, so that's why I mentioned last week. Chalayam could include the supporting staff. It appeared to that also, but it's a, it could be a larger number, much larger than the 120, 135. Yeah. So this is the actual, that's why I stressed enemy combatants, since we're talking phrases neutralizing and enemy combatants and all the other. It's, in other words, are important over here. The actual Shailif Cherev, as it says in the Pasig, has a lot of support staff for that. They, they moved as an army with supplies. You can have a two-to-one, three-to-one, four-to-one ratio. That's, that's a lot of people. And then you had people who were just coming for the sightseeing. You know, this is the only action they had then. So unfortunately, war was a way of life. You got to see the world, kill people. It was a nebuch. This is what they did for... Uh, they replaced it later with gladiators. And then the, in America, they replaced it with football. It's getting better. <laughs> it's, no, it's definitely an improvement. What? Yeah, but that's all. Yeah, like people, if you're not learning, uh, it's life can be very boring. <laughs> so uh, it's um, so kachal yam. It means a very large number. It sounds to me larger, much larger than this, and it's not a wouldn't be a stira. Pasuk yiralef, ve'al gidon derech shechune ba'olim. So doing the minimal hishtadlis in this battle, which gidon has to do. And he's mandated to do that. He knows there are Nisim and Aflaws. Whenever he does, there's going to be Nisim and Aflaws. He already saw Nisim and Aflaws. But he's now running with 300 men. We mentioned last week, I'm not sure why he's only running with 300 men, because he had a lot of help on the other side of the yard then. And the 300 men he has, he barely has supplies for. Apparently, as difficult it was for his 300 men to bring supplies, it was exponentially more difficult to rally everybody to come with him to cross into enemy territory. And I don't know if he befarish asked and they didn't come, or he didn't bother asking and there was no time, he just had to go. And that much he was being Samech on the Nase. And it was an Nase because we had the Bnei Ephraim complaining before, why didn't you call us? We got 
hordes of people and we're so strong and it was all true. Where are they? So. Possible, then you'd have to start inverting everything and. Uh, he didn't push it yeah, it sounds like the conversation happened before and he didn't have time to tell them, by the way, my next plan, he tell, tells them to blow up the bridges and to cut everybody off at the pass, which they did fairly successfully. And then he's getting live reports that there are about 15,000 people with Zavar Samuna who managed to cross the Yardin. But Pasha doesn't have time to go back and say, okay, follow me. It sounds like to us it would have been easier. So I mentioned that again because he's still relying on heavy Nisim. With all that, he's going to try a sneak attack, just like he attacked in the middle of the night with the Lapidim to scare them for the effect. And they wake up uh, after the first Ashmer and they're exhausted and they just woke up and the other ones just went to sleep. He's using the element to surprise. That's not going to detract from the nays that much, but he's got to do something to trigger the nays. And that's why we have a description here in the Pasuk. Those are the nomadic tribes. If you look at Rashi, the Arabians. Those are nomads. He's avoiding the big cities, clearly. Because he doesn't want to give them any heads up, doesn't want to sound the alarm, and doesn't want more people knowing about the necessary. So he's going in between villages, passing a couple of tents, and he's taking a very, very out-of-the-way route, which for hungry and tired soldiers is going to be more difficult. Rashi says, He's going in a roundabout way. In order to be able to attack them and confuse them suddenly. So, sounds like a lot of ishtadlus for somebody who needs an ace anyway, but he doesn't look at it like that. As a matter of fact, the experience he had so far of walking into any Jewish city and even dealing with them was exasperating, to say the least. So, the people in the Eivir Yardain, I don't want to defend them too much, but they were scared. And they said, if we help you and you're on the wrong side, you're on the losing side, we're going to be in big trouble, which wasn't a good terrorist, but he saw that's what they were holding. So again, let's go back to the Pasuk Yedal. Vayal Gidna Derech HaShchuni Ba'olem goes by the nomadic tribes. Mikedem L'Nevach V'Yagba Vayach Es HaMachan and it comes out of nowhere. Machana Haya Betach and they weren't expecting it and they were feeling secure. Vayanusu Zeva V'Tzalmuna and they start retreating in disarray. And Zevach and Salmuna start running. And he captures these two kings. Keep in mind, whenever it describes kings, you only have one king. You're hard to run a country with two kings. It means that this is a group of uh, cities, an area the Midian controlled, and they had city states. And these were, we would call them governors, but they were pretty high up. And the job is now complete. He annihilates the rest of the machana, captures the two kings he's looking for. So look at Rashi and Gimel. 
So all this was done in a day's work, which is a big part of the nace, uh, the speed, and the fact the execution was flawless, and it doesn't look like he lost anybody. And now he's going to turn back. First thing he has to do, you wouldn't think this is first and foremost in his mind, but he feels he has to do this despite the fact he's not vindictive and he doesn't want to do this, but if they're still at the end of the Muhamma, came out all done, but people have to know you can't tell the Shafit who's always ad hoc getting an army together at a moment's notice that no, we're not supplying you or we're not coming because he won't be able to get anything done. The next Shafit won't be able to get anything done. So he has to make a clear mark over here and he's going to do that right now in Pasuk Yes? Do we know the you can look on the map, yes. It's, it's far. The, the, um, I gave out maps once upon a time, but we can, if you might, I'll have... It's, yeah, that's, that's the nice. That's why the Pasuk stresses all this and the sun didn't even set yet. So you could put in uh, for the Haimish uh, part of it, Kvitsis uh, Aderech, there's a lot of missing going on. There's no, no doubt about it, but the Ishtadlis he's going to do now, you would say he's exhausted. Okay, the Yidin over there were scared. They didn't do the right thing. Leave it for a different day. Call him in for a Muslim Shmuz afterwards. He's coming back. He didn't even get home yet to rest. Like, there's no rest for the weary. And he's now going to stop at two towns in the second one. He's going to have to fight a little war. And he's going to have to end up killing people. But he promised them, he says, you guys are not doing the right thing, and I'm going to come back right away. And he's coming back right away. That's a real sense of a Christ. It would have been far easier for him to go home and make a Kiddush. Same yeah, same day. So he's doing this really lishma. Otherwise, it's going to sound, it's never comfortable, it looks like a civil war. It's not. He's just, there's a tremendous chutzpah doesn't begin to describe it. And you can't run a country like this. And he's in charge. So you've got to do it. Yes? So uh, eventually, when, when there's a They're allowed, and often they did, except when they didn't need it, Baruch Hashem, like Shlomo Melech. I don't have any riot, they had any standing army. So if, if the Shoftim had to give help, why couldn't Because they didn't want, I'll, I'll get to it either now or, or next year. The Shoftim Dafka have many riots. The Ramam is going to be one of them. They went out of their way to drop any trappings of a real Malchus, even though they had a full Din Melech when they needed it. Dafka, I think, to show Klai Yisrael, that there's a mitzvah to appoint a king. I'm not it. Wrong shavit. We're not there yet. And if you start bringing on all the pomp and ceremony and all the trappings and treat it like a regular melech, we're never going to get there. So I think it was Badafka done like this. That's my, that's my svara. And you'll see from the Rambam, the Rambam talks about malchus, tells you one of the main things of malchus is there's nepotism, and that's not a bad word. That's a good word. The, the world uses it as a bad word. It's a din. You must give it to the son. Shiloh, which son? So the Ram will discuss. The oldest, if he's worthy. But you're supposed to pass it on. And at the end of Periches, we're getting ahead of ourselves, they're going to be so uh, enamored with Gideon and so happy with him and want to show such a karasatoyv. They're going to make him a proposal. Says, this is Gavaldic. He says, you're going to be king and your son and your grandson. And he tells them in no uncertain terms, I'm not the least bit interested. He was a tremendous honor. Most people would grab the opportunity. I'm not the least bit interested. Hashem umalkeichem, which is the point over here. And it's not me, not my son. And this is not a dynasty. And none of the shaftim were. So it's 
That's the fascinating thing. Even though the Abarbanel starts talking about the description of where they were like a king and they weren't like a king. The answer is they took the aspects of Malchus for exactly what they needed to run a government when it was needed. And most of the time, Baruch Hashem, is they governed themselves, self-government, and it was gewaldic. It worked very well most of the time, except for a couple of times it was a disaster like Pelagius Begiva and the like. And that was exactly the point. He, was, he looked nothing like a king. As a matter of fact, it was such a top-secret operation, Kaiswell didn't know about it. Right. So they <laughs> they felt less secure. As a matter of fact, they turned them in. So, but we're a good year and a half away from the <laughs> Shimshas at the very end. But yeah, it fits into the theory, though. They were not looking. There's a Pasuk in Chumash, Santa Simelech HaMelech, and they knew what Shevet it's going to be from. And it's not from Menashe. So they were trying to avoid looking like, so Gideon is going to tell them, is absolutely not. Hey, I'm an, he was an Anav, he wasn't interested. I did this uh, under, almost under protest, and Hashem uh, was Metzavah me. So I went and I did it, and I'm happy it worked out. I'm going home. And he goes home, he retires. They, they come out. So we'll see that in the coming weeks. Right now, he's going to... Yes, that's exactly the point. You have to show the ability to raise the army and get basic bread. That's, uh, they were saying, well, you're still not a king. And they said, well, I'm acting like the They actually said worse. You're giving them too much. They, they said, we don't even think you're a <laughs> Basically, they're telling him, when I'm sure you're on the right side and you weren't a Navi, which Navi school did you go to? And you didn't... Coming back with proof that yeah. this is how it has to be. Right, right. And that's the only reason he's doing it. He's doing it completely lishma. Completely lishma. And he's going to do it uh, well. Take a look at Pasuk Yadalit. This is a Pella. You have to keep in mind most of the world till recently and in third world countries, as they call it, still the case, the masses were completely illiterate. We don't know. It's hard for us to imagine like if our children are not speaking and writing three languages by second grade, we're nervous, and rightfully so. That's unheard. Three languages? You know, realize what they're learning in yeshiva, some people complain not realizing what the yeshiva is giving them in the hours they have. You've got to have recess in between. Uh, they're learning English and Aramis at the same time, and then Ksav Rashi, Ksav Ashuris, English, and the sprinkling of Yiddish. And all that's in the first few years. Nobody's doing that. So where we've been doing that for many, many, many centuries since the time of the Shaftim, since the time of uh, Kabbalah Satera. So Gideon walks in, I remember in one of the early, as far as Victor Miller points this out, and uh, it's such an important point because it's, the Pasuk treats it like Derek Agav, though Pasha, of course, he could do this. He stops a nondescript kid on the street outside the village. He's going back to Sukkot now to punish them. And it was clear, Sukkot and Peniel, there were different people acting chutzpahdik, and Sukkot, it was the, it was the Zikanim, it was the leaders. So he said he's going to punish the leaders. But Penuel, he said he's just going to take down their tower because that's what they were depending on. He's going to end up having to fight them because they defend their tower. But he wants to punish the Zikanim. Nope. So instead of wasting time, he doesn't want to get the wrong people, he wants to know who the Zikanim are. So he has no idea. He doesn't have names and addresses. 
So he stops this, I say, nondescript kid. Stops a random, you know, picture of a kid, a shepherd, you know, without shoes, walking around. And he stops him and he says, can you give me a list of all the leaders of Canaan and all the cabinet members in the city? The kid might be 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old. You have to have a phenomenal memory and you have to be able to write both assumptions in the ancient world until recently were non-existent. Why would the average kid be very, very smart to recall 77 names on the spot? Under pressure, the kid probably figured out who this was, by the way. So he realizes what this list is for. His hands are probably shaking. And he writes them all down. It means he knew what to write. We think, that, well, why is that so special? If you know what's going on in the world now, know what's going on then, uh, the elite of the elite knew how to uh, write. Nobody else was even taught. So this is incredible. And it, and it works. Look, it's an amazing pasuk. You're dalad. So they capture a kid. Capture a kid meaning they see a kid, call him over, and say, uh, we're back and you have to cooperate because this is the, uh, the shayfit and the malchus here. He writes down 77 names on the spot. It's hard to imagine such, if you had to list uh, 77 of your second cousins, probably wouldn't be able to write it down. Why? He, what did he say? Yeah, but those are past presidents. Yeah, okay, but if you were, if I'd stop you in the street, maybe not you, if I stop somebody in the street and say, okay, write down 77 congressmen, just your district, just the tri state area. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> and he's writing it. He's writing it down, a clear print. And it's just, uh, see, so say, well, they must have gotten the Eloy of the town. They stopped a random kid. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, testimony to the Chachm of Klein. But it's still like that, and we insist on that. That's why the people of the book. Right? You've got to know how to read and write, and you've got to do it well, and you've got to have a good head, and you've got to remember what's going on. Yeah? I mean, I would interpret Me'anshe Sukkos, and the Nar was, he was young, but it was Me'anshe, he would be more with the adult crowd, the younger end, more... Imagine just means the general population, but even so, they didn't teach the average, if you were the leader, again, by the Umasalem, the leader, the Galachim learned, that there was, you know, because they were religious leaders, they... The Amanam didn't, uh, they were shepherding, farming, they didn't uh, have time to teach them this stuff. You have to milk the cows at five in the morning. Who had time for this? But the cholesterol, whatever they're doing, they have to make time to learn. That means presupposes you got to know how to read, you got to write. And I'm not even talking, you know, Savrashi, that uh, piece of pottery I showed you a picture of that was sent in, that had uh, you were Baal's thing on it, the, the, the hieroglyphics, I didn't even know, that's not even Savivri. They had like five different scripts. It's just uh, incredible. So he writes down the 77 names. This is not the sugya of Tnulanu Echad Mikam. One of the very surprising kashas that we have in Shas and the sugya of also Sahajim with very different Tnulanu Echad Mikam is they talk about Sarah Basasher, how can she hand over the renegades who are uh, running against Sheb and Bichri, are running against uh, Davin Amalek and uh, starting another rebellion right after Avisham. Hak hand them over. He said, Tnulanu Echad Mikam. Yeah, he came with the army. He said, We want his head either tomorrow morning, dead or alive. And he was a Marbamachus. So she said, You'll have his head tomorrow. I didn't even understand why they asked the Kasha. The answer is, he was a Raydif. He was a Marbamachus. 
I'm not sure what the, why that was a kasha in the first place. Maybe it's because she's the mayor of the town. She was the longest-running mayor, like, for hundreds of years. And normally the lady's not the mayor, but it was Sarah Basasher, or the spokesman. She wasn't the official mayor. So the question presupposes that they didn't really know he was guilty. Yoyev shows up in the army. If you ask Shemem Bechwe, he'll say, no, I'm supposed to be the real king, and he's the imposter. So maybe she didn't know. They did harbor him in the first place. He got into the city. That means he had support. So it sounds like it's a chiddush. It sounds like the Gemara's kasha is that Tzulachamikem is the people always asking for somebody's head think they're right. So what right do you have to hand them over? The Sanhedrin of this city holds that we should be harboring this person who's not a criminal, and Yehov comes and says you're harboring a criminal. So why should you hand them over? So Kamash Malan, she knew David Malach was right. After Shaila, still, what's the habit? They just had the rebellion of Absalom. It's very clear that David Hamel is supposed to be sitting in the throne. The answer is to allow the Hamanam. It wasn't clear, which is why Avshalom's rebellion was a real threat. Shadmavichi was shorter lived, but he was still dangerous enough to have to go get him. I'm mentioning this because over here, this Nair is stopped. I don't know if he's 11, 12, 15. I don't know how old he is, but somebody comes over to you and says, not Tunulana Echad, Tunulana 77 people at the town. Why is he allowed to cooperate? See, so it says, Pashat Gidden is right. Well, they didn't think it was Pashat Gidden was right when he came the first time, because they didn't give him supplies. I may not even know that it was September 77, so like every, every single name that he adds, is, he's volunteering another. And he's volunteering the first, the second, and they didn't look that friendly. It says, that means they captured him. That means, hey, you come here. So what does the kid do? His first reaction starts running the other way. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. Come here. And the, the army came, and they captured him. Now they have him. I'm sure they gave him some cockish cake and uh, made kiddush first. And they have him, and he's got to cooperate. So halakhically, what? No, and they're not going to. Yeah. That's not, to torture them is the same problem. Not as bad, but it's the same issue. They're not right to. Uh, we, that, well, that's what they Well, they called the kid over. That's why the Yilkud. The kid probably didn't want to cooperate because if he's smart enough to write down 77 names, he's smart enough to know what this is for. And then they explain to him that he's going to cooperate. Uh, unless he happens to like thorns and thistles also, which means he'll, the number will be 78. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think, <laughs> I think that's what happened, but he had no sentence. He understood uh, you're supposed to cooperate. He's right up here, Locha. Shaila's what the Havmina was by Serach Bazasher. That's my. Uh, that's my Shiloh, which it's hard to... The Maskane is Takashi knew that David Melech was right and Yayev was representing him. Whatever it was, he gave the names, wrote them down, and now he's headed to Sukkot. Yeah? Well, you'll see from the Hemshech, the next two Pesukim, he takes all of them and gives them a tour of the local thorns and thistles and... If they're a dissenting opinion, they should have said it louder. You can't punish somebody, Lahabdal, on a Supreme Court, or even a Dayan. If he's a dissenting opinion, you go off to Rive. I assume they had the Zion Tuve year, the 77 Tuve year, and they based it on Rive. So I'm not saying there weren't any dissenting opinions, but apparently they were people of uh, distinction, and if they would have made more of a ruckus, maybe they would have pushed it through. So I guess you had to be there. So, you told me I'm not giving you bread because I didn't capture Zevach and Samuna yet. And I told you I'm coming back with Zevach and Samuna. Here they are. They're still alive, by the way. POWs. 
That's an important uh, thing to note. It will be no geasum. If you recall, and he quoted them, that you said to me with chutzpah and derision and a doubt that you're acting like you captured Zebel v'salmuna already. So when you come back with them, we'll give you pita with hummus and a side order of fries. But now you get nothing. So he says, here they are. I don't think at this point he needed their bread because he won the battle and he probably took the bread from the enemy camp. Bread then was a uh, group one item which didn't need a special heksher, as it still is in parts of the world, very few parts, but some parts. And he's trying to uh, do chazara on their statement to show why he's going to punish them. Barkanim vayeda behem es anshe sukas. Yeda Rashi says, quotes the Targum, vataver bahun, which means he schlepped them on these thorns and thistles and it didn't tickle, but nobody got killed. So he basically taught them a lesson, which is getting off relatively easy. As a partial din melech, he had a right to execute them. He wasn't looking to do that, he was looking to prove a point to my Yishmu Viro. Yud Zayan, there's Migdal Panuel, when he gets to the next city, that it refused them supplies. So he starts taking down the Migdal, and he takes it down, destroys it, this tower that they had, that they depended on. It's Migdal Panul, not us, Anche'ir. And here he ends up killing them. The first one want to know, why did he kill them? There was nothing in the original threat that said that their punishment should be that much worse. And many of the suggest that it wasn't supposed to be, and it was actually less, and he just wanted to take down the Migdal, which was their prized possession, and a big hefzit for them, and they'd be very upset. Again, Laman Yishmu Viro, but they started defending the citadel, and then he had to fight, because then they were trying to kill his men, and they ended up getting killed. So that was not the original plan. Yes? If it was, he'd have to get rid of Sukkot and Penuel. We know when he ride that Penuel had more chutzpah. They both refused supplies. It was the same Avera. So it's clear from Sukkot that he just wanted to punish them and should hurt enough they should remember. And the same would have been for Penuel, maybe even less. He was just trying to take down the tower. So that's the Adiyak, as Middel Penuel Notot. And in that situation, the conflict uh, came to a point. The Yaragas and Sheir, he had to kill a lot of the people who were trying to defend it. So he's back now. He's still holding Zevach and Salmuna. And we'll show you there's a very, very important question that comes up that's in the background of the next two psukim. So we're going to see it and raise the question if we don't uh, get to treat it fully. So he now turns his attention to Zevach Samuna, who are prisoners, and he asks them where those Yidin, those people who you killed, where are they? Meaning he knew they were killed by them. He wants them to admit it. And what do they look like? And give me a description and let's talk about them. We'll see who they are in a moment. Oh, those strong, impressive-looking fellows. They looked exactly like you, mamish like Malchus, dripping with royalty. 
So look at Rashi Yud Ches. Echad Kesayah Ben Amelach. Yenis Antigam. Echad Haya Behem Shatayro Kesayah Ben Amelach. One of them looked like you. Come to think of it, didn't have Gedolim pictures then, so they didn't have a Gidon with uh, all the officers carrying and all the army carrying his uh, his flashcards and his um, his tire was not well known. Now they're staring at his face. He says, "You want a description? They look like you." So they told him why they cooperated so frankly. They were prisoners of war and they probably figured they had nothing to lose or maybe something to gain if they cooperate. And he said, those two people that we killed among the many other people they killed, said last week, if you recall, that they had done damage when they crossed the Yardane, but... He wasn't asking them about that. He was taking them to task about two particular people who were not supposed to be part of the Muhamma, and they were killed. And unfortunately for Zevach and Salmuna, they were his brothers. Not only were they his brothers, they were his brothers from his mother, meaning full brothers, and he knew they were killed for no reason. So he first wanted them to admit it to make sure that they realized now who it was and that he had the right men. Vayama achi achai b'nei imi heim. He makes a shvu deraisa. He says, I just want you to know, had you not made the mistake of killing them, I wouldn't kill you now. I keep you as a prisoner of war. I'm not interested in sending you back and setting you free so you can cause more trouble, but I wouldn't be killing you as I'm about to do. Why is that? What's going on? There's something uh, pretty big going on over here. So, Gideon apparently found out that his brothers were killed and they were civilians who lived there who were not actively participating in what was going on. They weren't supposed to be. And apparently Zevach HaTzamunah saw them and saw that they looked like Malchus and therefore just decided, like princes, like Hashra, people decided to kill them. Does that mean the brothers were not involved? They were not involved. There's a reason I'm saying that. Uh, there seems to have been, from ancient times already, international laws of combat, rules of engagement, which is a bit of a chiddush to me. As a matter of fact, it's a big chiddush that we have it now. Most of the modern uh, rules of engagement were enacted after World War I, after World War II, because they saw the Amish killing each other like behemoths, which they were. The, the art of killing, unfortunately, got so much worse in World War II, due to technology, and we're more familiar, not too familiar, with World War II. World War I was the first time in the modern era they started using uh, chemical warfare and using all... So, the Ubisoft got together, and the words are a bit of an oxymoron. The whole, uh, the whole thing is hard to wrap your hands around, but they said, you know, this is a very bad war, like the other wars were decent. Civil War, by the way, just to contrast... It's not really true that this is the first modern war for the Civil War really was, uh, we're talking 1860, but they already had some new things, new toys they never had before. And they also had new types of warfare and uh, trench warfare. That, a lot of those chidushim were in the Civil War. And the Civil War was absolutely horrific in terms of the worst war America ever fought against each other. They had the most casualties. And World War I, World War II, you know, comparing horrible, horrible, and horrible. Lamaisa, 
the Umasam didn't get together after the Civil War because it was the Civil War is only the Americans, so it wasn't Ogea. But World War I, it's, you know, we're used to quick wars because we have airplanes and we have missiles and it doesn't mean they're less deadly or potentially less lethal, but in World War I, they used to kill tens of thousands of people and move the line like five inches. And it went back and forth and back and forth. So people were so upset. After that, they said, let's make a list of rules on how to fight fairly. Which the words don't really make too much sense because what's going to happen often is the people on the right side of the moral issue, which I'm not saying this because I'm American, and the Americans aren't always right, but as we've seen, uh, the wars being fought normally are... um, for the ones fighting whether we should be fighting this war or not, uh, whether it's our business to contain communism, or the, but it's for freedom and for values and the like. Um, the other side, if you haven't noticed in the last hundred years, never plays by the rules. So we have a situation where we're fighting wars and we're bound by the laws being written and ratified by the UN, and the other side couldn't care less. So the first Shaila to throw out to, uh, to, to discuss, not now, is if the other side is not playing by the rules, are you really bound by these laws? The purpose of the laws are to say, look, if war is inevitable and we'd like to do away with all wars, and we would, and the Pusik says we will, lots of love, and all the other fancy toys and uh, technology to kill people will be used as plows, or the metaphor is going to represent whatever it's going to be used for, but not for war. So we're all in agreement that if you could tone down First, tone down the rhetoric, we won't have wars. But if you could tone down the uh, ways of killing people, that would be Gavaldic. Lamaisa, that's behind all the original salt talks. And what difference does it make if you trim your nuclear arsenal and you can only now blow up the world 28 times over instead of 56 times over? Answer is less bombs sitting around. Less of a chance it'll fall into the hands of some rogue uh, terrorist organization. Okay, so we're, we're for that. But the whole thing is a little bit hard to understand that we're only going to kill people the nice way, but don't torture them. And if you have uh, prisons of war, you got to do this. We're all for that if it helps anybody and there's less torture and less cruelty. We're, we're in agreement with that. Question is the facts on the ground. How does it work? What I'm trying to show is that it's fascinating. Over here, he's stating Beferish the rules of engagement in the Middle East then were that you don't attack civilians who are not bothering anybody just because you happen to be in a campaign and you can. And you killed my brothers and I'm a guy Adam and therefore I'm going to kill you now. And I couldn't do that before because I just captured you as an enemy combatant, as an officer, as a king, a king of a city-state, whatever they were. They were Khashiv and I have no right to kill you. And I wouldn't kill you because I can't. It's against international law and it would be a chil Hashem. However, now you're going to die because I'm a guy Adam and you killed my brothers. Which is quite an amazing... Uh, just one example, I'll take your question, and then we're still not going to get to the Peleades yet on Sukkis, but maybe on Sukkis we will. The most recent example was absolutely absurd, and the Umasalim are tiny, it's against international law. Do you remember, I'm not going to be in Magala too much, but I was getting real information from Mary Tisrael, and uh, I mentioned this on Shabbos and the cameras weren't rolling, now they are, so we're going to mention even less. But if you recall, not too long ago, there was another Gaza war, and they were trying to bomb them, they were trying to neutralize, that's the word we're agreeing on, uh, various terrorists and get rid of the uh, office buildings and the uh, missile building sites and the like. 
And then all of a sudden on the news, uh, the, all the news outlets said the Israeli army is going into Gaza, a ground defense. Somebody happened to mention that to me at Midcha. So he asked, should we say more Tehillim? I said, all four saying Tehillim, it just it happens to me it's not true. <laughs> he said, it's not true, we just support the news. I said, uh, that's your news, I get news directly. It's not true. And if you will recall, a few hours later, the world found out it wasn't true. And they were complaining, how can the Israelis do it? It's a violation of international law. They said that, a violation of international law. I'm trying to figure out a violation of which law did this violate. He says, you can't tell the media. You have to tell the media exactly what you're about to do in the next battle. And you told us false information. So they're absolutely out of their mind. How can that be? We're supposed to, the international laws are supposed to tell the enemy what we're about to do? If Gideon would have done that, he wouldn't have gone this route over here and come via the villages, via the Midbar, and attack them. He would have had to send a message to Zevach and Salmuna. By the way, I'm planning a sneak attack, so beware. You never know what's coming in the middle of the night. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I, the Chinese you could trust, for sure. So uh, that'll, that'll work. I, I, I don't understand, even in Lishitasam, I don't understand exactly, the media has that much gaiva and that much chutzpah. They say, you didn't tell us, Hayitachin, to have guys there on the ground, right, at the border of Gaza. They say, how can you fake right and go left? It's just funny, because I, the people I was talking to were, whatever, were in the army. I said, they weren't going in. So I said, just not true. So this guy in the shul came back to me and said, uh, we said a capital anyway, but I don't want to give that away. But he said to me, how would you know that? I said, how did you know that I knew that? He said, it was very obvious in the conversation. I said, I don't answer questions like that. <laughs> but we have to tell, that's the taina? So that's the type of international law that nobody has to abide by. I'm not even sure what they have on the books, but everybody's screaming and yelling. And the UN said they're going to have an investigation, which is amazing because the UN never investigates Israel, so I, I never would imagine why would they have a taina. But that would be a ridiculous application of this. But you see, in the ancient world, they had some protocol. And he said, honestly, he said the Pasuk, I wouldn't be able to kill you, but now I'm a girl dumb. You killed my brothers for no good reason. They weren't even part of the battle. Yes? So we discussed that for some sort for a while. He says certain worries uh, is Ritzifa, the Nitziv. Defense. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there a point where the Nitzvah would say, all right, this is beyond... The yes, yes. Receipt. I'm saying there is international law, and to kill civilians for no good reason would be a violation of that. But not that you've got to tell them what you're planning for the next secret attack. That would be, I think, beyond the pale. If anybody could explain to me what they were saying, I'd be curious, but it's clear that that's not what the Pesach means. Okay, Mitzvah Shem, we will continue after Sukkot.